Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Over the last weeks, we have been in Mark's Gospel making our way uh, through it, slowly but surely. We have concluded last week the first really main section in Mark's Gospel, a way just as a way of reminder, reminding us where we've been and what we've been considering. I want to call your attention back to chapter 1 and, and verse 1, which is just one page over. So if you have gotten to chapter 3, just turn back one page to chapter 1. I just want to read to you verse 1. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is writing to believers, to Christians in the first century, in Rome most likely, those Gentile Christians that through the work of evangelism there, uh, centered in Jerusalem, has spread out over the years and has over uh, probably about 30 years finally come to the point where the gospel has taken root in Rome. And Mark is writing uh, to a group of Christians in Rome, reminding them of what they probably have heard before in many stories and many conversations that they may have had with an apostle, maybe perhaps Peter or Paul or one of the other apostles who have made their way to Rome. And so Mark is writing uh, to these early Christians and telling them who Jesus is. Uh, so the primary goal of Mark's gospel is to help us understand who is Jesus. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? that I have come to put my faith in. Who is he? And so Mark writes to answer that question. But Mark also writes to Christians, not only to help them understand who Jesus is, but to understand what a Christian is. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, what does it look like to be in a relationship with Jesus? And so this morning in our text, we really see in this next main section of Mark's gospel, an opening of that second question of what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? But in the background, at every uh, turn, at every section, that question, that overriding question of Jesus' identity remains in the forefront. So who Jesus is informs who we are. Who Jesus is informs how we live our lives as Christians. And so if we get Jesus wrong, well, then we get our lives wrong. We don't have our lives properly ordered if we don't have a good understanding of who Jesus is. And so this morning we're going to consider who Jesus is and what does it look like to follow him. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up onto the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired. 
and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who is Jesus? And what does it look like to follow him? In, in Mark's gospel here, in verses 7 through 12, we really see a summary by Mark of, of really what was going on there in Galilee. Uh, Galilee is a region, a district outside of Jerusalem, uh, there in Judah, where uh, Jesus did much of his ministry in the early days. Uh, it's where Jesus was from. Jesus was from Galilee. And so naturally, uh, like most upstart companies, you begin in the in your hometown. You begin where things are most familiar to you. You begin where you see familiar faces and you see familiar places. And you know and you can navigate the ge- geography of, of where things are. And, and this is really what Jesus was doing. Jesus began in his own hometown and he began to share the gospel. And back in chapter 1 and verse 14, Mark tells us that, that what Jesus was telling people was about the kingdom about the coming of the king. And so Jesus was declaring to the crowds that he was the long-awaited king of Israel. That he was the one who was going to deliver them from sin. Well, the problem was is that, well, when a, when a teacher comes into town and begins to share and begins to tell uh, about his grand plans, people began to have well, misunderstandings about who Jesus was. They began to get confused as to really the purpose Jesus was there for. And so in our text this morning, Mark really pulls out for us and reveals to us the motives that these crowds had. What was motivating these crowds to come and follow him? And so Mark gives us in this short little few verses here, really a picture of two groups of people. So imagine, when you share a message, you have people who uh, respond positively to that message. Uh, Maybe people that are neutral to that message. Maybe they're not quite affected. Maybe it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. There's people that are uh, perhaps against your message. Maybe they don't want to hear what you have to say. And so they begin to respond and rebuttal you and, and confront you. Well, what we've seen over the weeks in the past has been really several different responses to the gospel message. Several different ways in which people are responding. And so what Mark is doing here for us this morning is preparing for us uh, the, 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 the days to come, the, the weeks to come. As we get further into the center of Mark's gospel, we begin to find that, that not everybody is favorable towards the gospel. Sometimes we can have this sort of attitude like, hey, why wouldn't people accept Jesus? I mean, Jesus is loving and he's kind and he's really a nice guy. And, you know, what's the deal? You know, and and so often when we share the gospel, maybe even with our friends and family, we're shocked that people don't believe this message. We're almost like just like we're confused as to why one wouldn't just put their faith in Jesus. Well, 
when we come into a familiar territory like the parable of the sower and the seed, when you come into parables that may be familiar, maybe you've heard years ago, and as we confront those parables, Mark is providing for us a context to understand why people reject his message. Why people are so against the message that Jesus is giving. And so we begin to see that of these different people, of these different types of people uh, uh, responding to Jesus' message. And, and one of those groups of people is this crowd, this, this great crowd. And so if you were to just kind of go through Mark's gospel, you're going to find that word over and over. Lots of people followed Jesus. Jesus was a popular guy, right? And Mark tells us why he was so popular. Notice with me what he, what he says. He says that a great crowd. Uh, notice the extent of, of the crowd. Uh, he says they came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. Now, all of you are thinking, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, right? You don't know where those geographical locations maybe are. It's been a while since you've opened up those maps, right? I know what you all do during the sermons. You look at those maps in the back of the, you know, in the Bible. I know that because that's what I used to do, too. So, um, right? So if you were to get one of those maps out, those trusty maps to keep your attention during the sermon, and you begin to pinpoint uh, like a Google map and begin to see where all these places are, you begin to see that Jesus has an extensive influence there around Galilee. Jesus is reaching people that are different than him. And this is profound. This is profound when you consider that most of the time, the people who follow others are like you. You follow people that are like you, that have the same ideologies of you, maybe the same familiar background as you. Yeah, they didn't grow up in the same streets that you grew up in. But when you talk to them and when you hear from them, you can tell they're from your part of the country. They're from your part of the, of the street. You, you understand. They, they're talking a familiar language. And, and so when you begin to consider the vast following that Jesus has in this gospel, it is really mind-blowing to consider. People from Galilee, okay, get it, that's hometown. People from Judea, okay, well, you know, that, that, that's the larger region there around Galilee. But notice what he says, and from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city within Judea. It's a city, it's a capital city there of Judah. And so he's saying that not only the country folk from Judah, but the city folk believe as well, right? He says not only those out on the outskirts believe, but those, excuse me, follow, but also those in Jerusalem. And then Idumea, up to the north, and from beyond the Jordan, out south, and from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are really regions that were kind of despised by most Jews because there was a lot of what they considered inbreeding. Uh, there was a lot of intermarriages going on between Jews and Gentiles, and they were really shunned. They were kind of looked down upon because they had intermarried. Fascinating when you consider this list is that Samaria isn't listed in this. Uh, so even here in Mark's Gospel, we're going to see early on that there's this distinction between Samaria and the rest of Israel. Uh, Samaria was was utterly despised. But later in Mark's Gospel, we'll be confronted with the region of Samaria. All of this is to say that Jesus garnered a vast following. A lot of different type of people were following him. Now, why is that important? Well, why is that so important? Why, why emphasize this, this, this uh, uh, variety? Because what we're going to see in a moment when we consider the disciples is that Jesus 
unites a diverse people. Jesus isn't about creating a homogeneous group that all looks the same and smells the same and thinks the same way. But rather, Jesus is bringing together people who would not normally be together. Jesus is uniting people who wouldn't on an everyday basis rub shoulders because of some reason, whether it be sociological, economic, whatever the reason may be, uh, these people didn't normally hang out. And Mark tells us why they were so fascinated with Jesus. Uh, fascinated, they were fascinated by his miracles. Now, later in Mark's gospel, we'll see that they were fa- they'll become fascinated uh, by his teaching. Uh, we saw that a little bit in the earlier parts in chapter 2, that, that they were astonished that he taught with one as a th- that had authority. But here in Mark's gospel, he says that he's te- he, it's not his teaching that is, that is attracting the crowds. Look at verse 10. He says, For he had healed many, so that all who had dis- diseases pressed around him, to touch him. Uh, the language here is, is kind of like a mob mentality. You know, oftentimes people have this view of Jesus, and I try to sort of confront it uh, often in my conversations and, and even publicly, uh, of this kind of nice Jesus, like this really quiet, quiet and gentle man who just loved to be around people, and he just had these beautiful blue eyes, which wasn't true, and, 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 and his beautiful flowing hair, and he had arms wide open. Uh, That's not the picture you see here. The picture you see here is of the celebrity being mobbed by the cameras. This is people pressing around a leader and, and pushing him and, and elbows going and, and people and, and Jesus is like, disciples, get me out of here, right? These people are going to crush me if I do not get out of here, right? And so what we see here is a picture of people following not because of what they believe, but because of what they see. These crowds of people misunderstood who Jesus was. They, under, they misunderstood why Jesus came. What attracted this crowd of people that day was, was that the word had gotten out that if you just touch Jesus, he'll heal you. He'll, he'll miraculously transform your life. And friends, sadly, that's how we treat Jesus even in our Christian lives. If we just draw near to Jesus and kind of touch him every once in a while, he'll kind of miraculously change us. He'll he'll kind of just like, boom, everything's good, and then we go about our business. And then when things get bad again, well, we'll go back and touch Jesus again and, you know, kind of get juiced up again, kind of like plugging your phone in the charger. You know, the thing goes dead, you know. You can go weeks maybe without plugging it in, maybe days, maybe hours. Right, But when you need to plug it in, boy, you just go and you plug it in. Well, friends, that's what we think a lot of times about Jesus. We just think, oh, we can just go plug into Jesus, go touch him, and we're good. But we'll see in a moment, that's not the kind of life that Jesus wants for his disciples. He doesn't want his disciples attracted to him based on some sort of external thing like physical healing. Physical healing will come, Jesus will tell us later. Physical healing is going to come. And I want to promise you this morning that physical healing will come to you one day. But it may not be today. In fact, we are guaranteed in Revelation chapter 21 that that healing comes to all those who call upon Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. 
what these people had is an over-realized, really, eschatology. They had an over-realized uh, when they were in the time frame of God's redemptive plan. God hadn't yet set all of creation in order. But they wanted to follow Jesus nonetheless. We also see in this passage another group of people. Another group of people in this passage. Notice with me in verse 11, the other group. The other group mentioned by Mark is that these of those possessed by demons, the, those that, 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 that were human beings that, that had unclean spirits inside of them. And I want you to notice again, in striking fashion, what Mark says. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. We've seen this before in Mark's Gospel. This isn't new information, uh, but it's a, it's a tremendous summary of what would happen. It was like a spiritual reflex. When a, when, when, a, when, a, uh, when a demon would see Jesus, he would automatically fall down and start crying. He, he would fall down and scream, you're the son of God. He, what are they, what's Mark's point by including this? I think Mark's point is this. The crowds miss who Jesus is when the demons get it. The demons are getting who Jesus is. In fact, they want to get out who Jesus is. Not because they, they love Jesus, not because they want Jesus' name to get out, but because they want to mess up Jesus' plans. And so that's why Jesus tells them in verse 12 not to tell anyone. You might find that striking and strange. Like, Jesus, uh, I thought the point was you wanted to get your name. I thought you wanted the gospel to spread. What's, what's the deal, Jesus? I, I don't quite understand what you're, what you're meaning by that. Well, what Jesus was doing was he wanted... He had a particular plan in how he wanted to get his reputation out. He had a particular plan on how he wanted to get his gospel out. And that wasn't going to be through demons. That wasn't going to be through those that were going to distort that message. Because again, people had a complete misunderstanding about who the Messiah was supposed to be. Uh, during this time, the Jews were, were really puppets, pawns, in, in, in a grand scheme that the Roman Empire had. The Romans had this vast empire that, that at this time was beginning to grow and stretch big, larger and larger, pushing against territories that no other had, had, had seen, that, that, that the Greeks had, had longed for, but yet the Romans were able to occupy. And right now, in this time period, the Jews were, were basically being occupied by the Romans. And so what they longed for was for a king that was going to deliver them from their Roman occupation and set them up as a free country again. That's what they wanted in their lives. And, and so they would oftentimes, when biblical passages uh, from the Old Testament talked about the Messiah, they would interpret that to mean that when, when the Messiah came, he would free them from their Roman occupation. And so when Jesus comes and he says, no, I'm not going to free you from the Romans. In fact, what's going to happen is the Romans are going to kill me and I'm your king. I'm your Messiah. They were confused. Like, wait a minute. I thought Isaiah said that the king was going to reign victorious. I thought the king was going to destroy all the enemies of God. I'm confused, Jesus. What do you mean you're going to die? And so Jesus ensured that this message of the kingdom of God was one that he proclaimed and those that he delegated proclaimed so that they got the message right. And so we see these, these two crowds, these, really these two groups of people, the crowds who followed for physical reasons and the demons who were just trying to stop whatever Jesus was doing. And in contrast to that, we begin to see a different group of people emerge in Mark's gospel. 
And from the remaining portion of Mark's gospel all the way to the end, there is a group of people that, the, that Mark kind of focuses in on and gives attention to. Many of you may be familiar with them. We call them the disciples or the, the twelve as Mark mentions them here. We've seen a few of them come into the narrative uh, a few weeks ago. We saw Peter and his brother out fishing and Jesus calling them. We've seen Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, being called by Jesus to follow him. Uh, but now we see a summary of who these disciples were. So as you consider with me verses 13 through 19, I'm just going to read them again just so you can feel the thrust of what Mark is trying to communicate. And I want you to see in this passage, uh, Mark's point is to teach us what does it look like to follow Jesus. Now he's going to give more detail uh, in the chapters ahead. But right here he gives a summary of what does it look like to follow Jesus. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. They came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So we're going to see in this uh, really fleshing out a few things about what does it look like to follow Jesus. Before we do that, I want you to notice something striking about what Mark says. In verse 13 he says that he went up on the mountain and called to him, those whom he desired. What we see here uh, by Jesus, Jesus isn't just like you know, uh, picking a, a convenient geographical location. Like you know, I like that mountain over there. I'm going to go up there. You know, like that looks good. But rather, what we see here is some imagery from the Old Testament being picked up. In the Old Testament, when a leader of Israel would would would, would go meet with God or or go and and give instructions, well, he'd go up on a mountain. And in fact, there's one mountain that, that really stands above the rest when we consider a, a great leader in the history of Israel, and that's Moses. And when Moses met with God, he met with God on a mountain. And when Moses gave instructions to the elders of Israel, he did it on the mountain. And so when we see Jesus doing this, we, we begin to see Jesus playing a role uh, from the Old Testament of one who's a leader of Israel. Jesus is going to lead, and people are going to follow I want you to notice then how uh, what a disciple is. First, a disciple is one who is called. A disciple is one who's called. Jesus called to them those whom he desired. I want you to see that, that it's not the choice of the disciple to follow Jesus, but Jesus' choice of those whom would follow him. I want you to notice also that they come. Here in these short verses, you begin to see Jesus' sovereignty over human life. That Jesus calls and people answer that call, right? When you call someone and they don't answer, what happens? You get really frustrated, right? Or you text someone and they never text you back. You know, it's like, ah, you know, call me back or text me back. It's so frustrating, right? When Jesus calls, people answer. People answer. And when Jesus called his disciples, they came. They followed him. 
And as you consider all of the gospel accounts, that is one of the most striking things. All those whom Jesus called follow him. He says as much in John 6 and John 10. All those who the Father give to me come to me, and I will lose none of those whom the Father has given me. So he calls those whom he desired. So, so this is an outflow not of our own desires, but, but God's desires to draw near to us. We, we, what you see here is not the human initiative, but, but God's initiative to have a relationship with, with humanity. If Jesus is the Son of God, whom Mark presents him to be, then we begin to see some character about God. We begin to see that God draws near to humanity, not humanity to God. And that's the upside down world that we live in. Uh, you know, if you go back to the Old Testament, to the Tower of Babel, what was happening there is you see a people, just like you and I, trying to get to God, trying to have a relationship with God, trying to do our thing to be like God and have a relationship with Him. When God says, no, that's not how it's going to happen. How it's going to happen is, is I will institute the relationship with you. And I will set the parameters for what that relationship's going to look like. You know, us as free-thinking Americans often impose upon the biblical text what we think it looks like to follow somebody. Because in our own lives, we've been following people for a long time, and we define when we follow and when we don't follow. If you've got young people in your life and they get on Facebook and Twitter, that's how that world works. I don't want to follow you anymore, so I click unfollow. Or I want to follow you, and so I click follow. Or I want to be friends with you, and I don't want to be friends with you, right? I mean, that's just how the world we live in today. It's just sort of, there's no covenanting, there's no relationship. It's just based on, I feel like following you today, I don't feel like following you, right? The fickle people. But what we see here is not fickleness apart on Jesus or the disciples. We see a call, and we see a response. Mark goes on to tell us that he appointed them. Literally, he made them. The underlining word there is to make. He made the twelve. He fashioned them. Language reminiscent of the Old Testament. Again, as God is creating the world, as God is forming the world, as God is forming the Israelite people, he's making them, he's forming them, he's cutting them. And then it says that he made twelve. Twelve is not a normal biblical number. It's not a number that you, you often are confronted with. You know, not a number like seven or, or a number like six, but a number th- like a number three, for example, that's pretty prominent. But a number twelve, well, we begin to see that number comes up in the Old Testament again. As, as God called the, the tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, the, the twelve tribes. And, and what we begin to see here is that God is forming through His Son a new Israel. A new people who will faithfully follow Him. A people who will represent Him among the people of this world. Where Israel failed, Jesus is being faithful and calling again people to Himself. I want you to notice here a few things about following Jesus. Beyond what we've already noticed, notice with me here why they were called. Verse 14, He appointed the twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him. So that they might be with him. Jesus wanted a relationship with these men. Jesus was entering into a a relationship with them. Oftentimes when we think about Christians, we often define them as what's 
and not whose. We, we often define Christianity as what you need to do in your life rather than who you are. What we see here, what defined these disciples is not what they did, that is the activities that Jesus was going to give to them. That's part of it. That's an essential part of the identity of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But I think something greater is who they were to be. That they might be with Him. That they might be in a relationship with Him. That they might be called His disciples. We begin to see here a a, a grand picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, entering into a relationship with broken people. With sinful, rebellious people. Jesus wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to be with us. You know, oftentimes we think of Jesus as a, or even God as this sort of distant figure in our lives who only cares when things get bad or, you know, only, you know, when things are really rough, I might call on him. But following Christ is about a relationship with him, an intimate time where a fellowship and walking with him. And literally, that's what these men did. For three years, they ate and they slept, conversations walked with Jesus. Friends, it is a picture of what our lives are to be like. In contrast to the crowd who who just wanted to be with Jesus when it was convenient for them, uh, when when they needed Him, we see following Jesus is, is about being with Him all the time. That The eternal God has drawn near to us in His Son, as the author of Hebrews has said. We notice then it's a relationship. And secondly, we notice that there's purpose behind it. He doesn't call us to sit. Notice what he calls them to do. He says that, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. The primary responsibility of these disciples was to follow Jesus, to be close to him, to be like him, and to go and share his message. The word to preach here has this verbal idea. They weren't to go live good lives among people as role models, but they were to go and share a distinct message. That word is the same word that's used back over in verse 14 of chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Preaching. He was heralding the gospel. And that's what his disciples were going to be doing. They were going to go out and they were going to herald the gospel. In contrast to the demons that were just running their mouths off, God's plan was to send out these 12 men to go and to share the greatest news the world had ever heard. And when we fast forward to the book of Acts, we see that's exactly what happened. These men went out and soon the greatest news that had ever been heard reached you. A message starting with 12, and we could probably argue just three, Peter, James, and John, transcends the generations for two millennia. For 2,000 years, disciples have been sharing this great news that was started there on that mountain that day. It is amazing to see God's plan coming about. And so he says that you are to go out and 
to preach and to have authority over demons. To have authority over demons. What we see here is that Jesus is is delegating his authority to his disciples. Uh, Just like one of the things that fascinates me is uh, the press secretary for the president. Right? You know, regardless of what comes out of his mouth, uh, all that comes out of his mouth is spoken as if the president of the United States is standing there speaking those same words. That's delegated authority. And tremendous to consider that, that the president invests in, he, he vests that man with, or, or woman, uh, with the authority to speak on his behalf. That's tremendous. Because, you know, as humans, we, we do say things that are wrong sometimes, right? We make mistakes. And, and to consider when he makes a mistake, well, then that comes back on the president, doesn't it? It doesn't come back on him. It goes back on the president. So he's, it's just fascinating, mind-blowing, the questions that he gets. And then he has to answer on the fly, thinking on behalf of another human being. It's tremendous to think about the responsibility that one who has delegated authority has. That's the kind of responsibility then we begin to see the disciples having. A responsibility to preach the gospel and a responsibility to have authority over demons. Friends, if you come this morning feeling oppressed, this is good news here. If you're a Christian today, you've been struggling and thinking, you know, Satan has really taken me to task in my life. Friend, I want to remind you that these words hold true to you just as much as they hold true to the disciples. Followers of Jesus have authority over evil. Whether it be through temptation, whether it be through struggles, whether it be through whatever you're facing demonically in your life, through Christ you have authority that's been delegated to you for his glory. Cry out to your Savior and he will free you from this. A delegated authority. As you think about these 12, you kind of look at a list like this, and I, and I know, you know, maybe if you're a an old Sunday school lover, and you memorized this list. You know, is this you know years ago? I remember that this was like a staple. Like you were a really cool Christian if you could know who all the disciples were. Uh, you know, uh, and we you know we were forced to memorize this list and, and think about that. But you know, a couple of things in conclusion, I want you to think about here is Jesus. Jesus was in these guys' lives. Jesus cared for them. Now, what's the basis for making a claim like that? That Jesus cared for his disciples. Look at verse 16. He nicknames them. He gives them nicknames. He calls Simon, he calls Simon Peter, and James and John, the two brothers, he calls Boanerges, the sons of thunder, right? He knew these men. He lived life with it. He, Jesus wasn't uh, this, this teacher or preacher that was not involved in the lives of his people. Uh, Jesus didn't like, you know, when the campfire was going, uh, set off by himself. He lived life with these men. Jesus was a man. Uh, and he had fun with people. And he called them names. It's a tremendous thing. Jesus is a human being, just like you are. But yet he's also fully God and fully man. 
Friend, do not miss that Jesus knows what it's like to live as a human being. He knows your sufferings. He knows your joys and your sorrows. And He wants to love on you the way He loved on these men. Giving you nickname or whatever it may be. He loved these men and He wanted to be with them in a relationship. Jesus cares for you just like He cared for them. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Mark, I think, wants us to see. The kind of the Jesus that you've called to put your faith in is a Jesus who cares and wants to have an intimate relationship with you in your life. Another thing I want you to notice here is if notice at verse 18. At the end of verse 18, he says, Simon the Zealot. Now, there's a lot of confusion or disagreement on what does this mean? Is he, was, he a, was, this this mean was this like a personality thing? Like he was zealous? Like, so personality trait, zealous guy, he's like, woo he's a real go-getter. He was like in your face, like, yeah. Let's, or, or what, there was also the zealots politically, like a political party, you know, like Democrat, Republican, you know, political party, sort of like, okay, if you were to find like a Democrat, you might kind of have it in your mind, like what that person might be, or a Republican, or, you know, you know, political party. So zealots were one of the political parties there in Jerusalem and in the surrounding region of Judea at the time. So we're not really sure. I would probably lean more to that, political affiliation. He was part of the zealous class. And if that's true, and if that's true, and then we go up a little bit to Matthew, who's Levi, the tax collector, a despised person socially, a social outcast, uh, a traitor uh, in the eyes of every Jew. He was a traitor. Uh, he, he was in... He was in a relationship with the Roman you know, occupiers, right? Those people I talked about at the beginning that, that every Jew wanted out of there, the Romans, right? That's who he worked for. And he extorted his fellow brothers, the Jews, for money. So he's, an ex- he's a mobster, right? He would do whatever it took and get it however much he could, right? So here we have a, a guy that is a zealot for, for the name of Judaism, right? So he's this ultra-conservative radical, and then on the other spectrum, you have the trader. And then you got some fishermen in the midst here, some business owners. You got these crazy Sons of Thunder guys, right? And Peter. What's all of that to me? Jesus unifies people, Jesus brings unity where there's diversity. And friends, that's why the local church must be diverse. Because followers of Jesus are diverse. Jesus didn't call to himself all the same type of people. He called different kinds of people for his own purposes and for his own glory. We don't know why. He did it for his own glory, not ours. He didn't tell us why he chose Peter over some other guy. He did it. For his own glory. So Jesus unifies. And the third person I want you to see is verse 19. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Oh, friends, do not miss this person in the story. Fascinating. Mark could have not left, put him on the list. Mark wrote years after he knew what Judas had done. He could have cleaned the story up a little bit and kind of taken Judas out of the story. Kind of said, Judas 
Yeah, betrayed him, but he wasn't a disciple. Fascinating how the Bible includes that. Doesn't try to clean the story up, but demonstrates that those who were closest to Jesus were broken. They were broken, just like you and I are. Judas was broken, he was a sinner. Nothing in us is greater than Judas. You know, sure, we might look at Judas and say, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. But I want you to look at it from Jesus' perspective. And helping you understand who Jesus is. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. He knew it. Knew it all along. Yet he still chose, still chose him to hear all the parables to hear all the stories, to be prayed for and loved on, just like everyone else, just like Peter, James, and John were. So Judas was cared for. Friends, I want you to see what kind of Savior Jesus is. That Jesus Jesus can save even the worst. That Jesus will enter into a relationship with even the worst. But I think the greater point that Mark is making here is that Jesus wasn't surprised by his death. In fact, he planned it. Jesus purposed to die. No one forced Jesus to die. No one twisted his arm to make him die. He willingly went. He he even let the man who would betray him into his inner circle. That's how much Jesus loves you. That he would allow a betrayer and a thief to represent you. Because Jesus died for thieves and betrayers and the worst of sinners. Let's pray. God, you are a gracious God, overwhelmed by your goodness and grace. Father, we have begun to see what it looks like to follow after you, to give up our homes, to give up our lives, to give up our resources, to go all in with you. And Father, it is often difficult to do that. We are being pulled pushed, many temptations confronting us. And Lord, I pray this morning for your flock, for your people, for your children, who you have called by your name, a people of whom you desired, whom would give you glory and praise and adoration, a people who are sinners and broken, whose lives are messy, filled with mistakes and error and sin but lives that were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Father, my prayer is that we would appreciate Christ more and more, that we would grow to follow Him closer and closer, for He is a God who cares for our souls, who longs to be in a relationship with us. And so, Father, this week I pray that we would draw closer to You, that we would go to You, that we would not just be like the crowds, 
getting like you're a Santa Claus, treating you as such. Father, that we would follow after you. We pray that you would empower us to do this by your Spirit. And for your glory we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.